Now what I've got here is my little object lesson. This is a sample of our carpet. Very exciting, isn't it? Well, by the time I've finished, I hope that we're all going to be a bit more like this, or at least resolved to be like it. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to be the same old, boring, grey. We're going to stop dyeing our hair and all go grey and all that. That's not my style, is it? No. No. Grey is not my favourite colour. This was not my first choice at all. We were given a bunch of samples and we chose one that we, we liked. It had green in it, it was nice. But when we got to the shop to order it, they didn't have it. So this was kind of like the best of a bad bunch. <laughs> Nothing like our previous carpet, which was a lovely light green. But this carpet has one outstanding feature, truly outstanding. A quality that anyone who has a husband or kids or grandkids will really appreciate and something that we all need to learn. This carpet is extremely forgiving. Very forgiving. At home, it's had to cope with red acrylic paint, heaps of curry, great big, great big blobs of tomato sauce, orange felt tip, and on and on we could go. And it's so forgiving, you'd never know. There is absolutely no record at all. Right, so forgiveness qualifies a carpet for long life. Forgiveness qualifies a human being for eternal life. Well, specifically, the forgiveness offered through the blood of Jesus that was shed when he died, such a cruel and sacrificial death on the cross. Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, the forgiveness of our sins was not free. It was a very costly and a strictly legal transaction. The reason that salvation is free is God's grace. So why do we, grace is free. So why do we say we're saved by grace? Easy. Grace is seen in the love and the mercy of God in providing his son to, to pay the price and grace is further seen in Jesus the Son, freely laying down his sinless life, again, to pay the price for our sin. He was willing to be tortured to death to pay the costly ransom for the souls of man. Say it with me if you know it, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Amazing Grace is one of the most well-known hymns. They say that it's performed about 10 million times a year. Wow. It was written 250 years ago by John Newton. Now, he had a troubled childhood. His mother passed away when he was six, 
and his father remarried, but that didn't work out too well for him. His father was a sailor, and by the age of 11, John Newton started going with him on long sea voyages, and then later on, he began his own sailing career. Now, this is horrific. He began by searching the coast of Africa, looking for people to capture and to sell as slaves. And then there was one time when he was on his way to Jamaica and he was going to take up a position as a slave master, but then he was conscripted into service on an English warship. Now the conditions there were so bad that he deserted, but he was caught and he was terribly flogged and then demoted. So then he asked for a transfer and he ended up on a slave ship and he was supposed to be the servant to the master of that ship, but he was actually treated like a slave and brutally abused for years until he was rescued by another captain. Well, wouldn't you think that after that he would be compassionate towards slaves? But no. When he became the captain of a slave ship himself, he treated them just as brutally and abused them. Now, on one voyage when he was the captain of a slave ship, his ship got caught in this violent storm, terrible storm. And when it was about to sink, John Newton remembered something that his mother taught him when he was a little boy. And at that moment, he cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. And God rescued them. And he called that his great deliverance. God saved him and his ship. And that's when he got the revelation of God's amazing grace, undeserved favor. In later years, he actually worked with William Wilberforce, the famous MP who successfully led the campaign to abolish the African slave trade. Amazing grace. Now, you wouldn't want to live in my head. Sometimes if I can't sleep, my brain goes berserk. Like after seeing that movie, Amazing Grace, Say if I get cramp in my leg at night, you know about that one, eh? Well, then I can start obsessing over the terrible conditions of slaves crammed into those little boxes on those ships. Now, many of them died, and also a lot of them suffered a dislocated um, hip or shoulder, and they were just stuck like that for the whole voyage. But I think even if they got cramp in their leg, they couldn't walk or move to do anything about it. It's just terrible, how horrific. It's awful just thinking about it. But John Newton was a lead player in the nightmare that those poor slaves went through. And deep down, he must not have known that he was a total wretch and a rotten sinner. So how amazing the revelation of God's grace would have looked to him at that time. God's unconditional and undeserved grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. That was in such a stark contrast to the dark and turbulent scenario of his wretched life. 
And that inspired him to write those beautiful words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But hey, we're all rotten sinners in God's sight. We're all in the same boat. And John Newton's story reminds us of that truth. Forgiveness is received rather than achieved. It's a gift to all of us. An unbelievably costly gift. But Jesus paid for the forgiveness of our sins when he died on the cross. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now God's grace also shines through in the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And this is what I want to look at this morning. And the grace that Jesus showed to her applies to us in two ways. Firstly, we get that same grace. Jesus forgives us, he doesn't judge us or condemn us, he's with us, he's for us. And he wants us to be and to feel forgiven. And secondly, the gracious way that Jesus deals with this woman is a model to us of how he wants us to deal with others. So there's two sides to this. So I'll just read the story. John 8, verse 3 to 11. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group in the temple and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any one of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time until only Jesus was left with the woman. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and sin no more. Now the scribes and Pharisees were out to get Jesus. Back in those days when tricky legal questions came up, they would go and get a rabbi to sort it out, and Jesus was the rabbi here. And they, were, they really wanted to get him in the position of making the decision to execute this woman. According to Jewish law, adultery was a serious crime and it was punishable by death, death penalty here. And they wanted to get Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Would he be merciful and let her off or would he be strictly legal and sentence her to death? Now this was going to be tricky because legally, she should be stoned, but if Jesus said, go ahead and stone her, well, that was the end of his reputation for love and mercy. Never again would he be called the friend of sinners. And then also he would be breaking the Roman law that they lived under, 
because Jews weren't under that law, Jews weren't allowed to put anyone to death. On the other hand, if he said that she would be let off, should be let off, they would point out from the um, Leviticus that adulterers had to be stoned, and they would accuse him of going against the law of Moses, condoning, even encouraging, the sin of adultery. So they tried to chat, trap Jesus, but of course he was too smart for them. Now there's an old saying, you know, it, it takes two to tango. It often applies to sex, right? But what it means is that if two people are involved in something bad, they're both equally responsible. Now the law that these leaders were going on about from Leviticus clearly says in the case of adultery, both the man and the woman should be punished. So they caught the woman in the act. Excuse me. They caught the woman in the act, <laughs> not the man. <laughs> Was he their friend? The fact that only the woman was being charged when it takes two to tango demonstrates that these leaders were not too concerned about justice. They were just trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus had a different attitude. He didn't judge the woman. His attitude was grace, pity, understanding, forgiveness. And then as we go on, we will see his brilliant wisdom. But we look at don't judge. The Bible clearly tells us not to judge. First of all, we're all sinners. You know, we're not in the position to go around pointing the finger at others. And secondly, we don't always see the big picture. You know, understanding really helps us not to judge others. Jesus understands everything. You know, like, how many of us feel like tearing our hair out over all this shoplifting, crime, ram raids, murders, terrible things going on? I mean, it's really bad. I read recently that more than 95% of the children and young people involved in these ram raids were linked to at least one event of family harm. That's like serious stuff, violence. And the average age for their first contact with the police, get this, four years old. 65% of them had five or more events of family harm, and 35% had 10 events. It doesn't make it right. Crime is never right. It's never God's way. Stealing is sin, but when we hear the backstory, it does help us to understand. Jesus understands everything and everyone. He understood where this woman was coming from. We don't know anything about her background, but Jesus did, and he didn't judge or condemn her. And then we see him writing in the dust. Without a word, he just bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Not good for your skin. But of course, you know, they're all looking down like, hmm, what's he writing? This is where we see God's wisdom. Now, I go with the view that he was confronting these religious leaders with their own personal besetting sins. They were clamoring for an answer. Should this woman be stoned to death? And Jesus was, okay, yes, go ahead and stone her, but let the man who is without sin 
throw the first stone. And when he said that, of course, you know, what's he writing? Oh. And as they did that, they were graphically confronted with their own besetting sin written in the dust. And one by one, they were so convicted, they just slunk away until there was no one left. You see, one reason that the Bible tells us not to sin, is that, not to judge, is that we're all in the same boat. Now, it's unlikely that any of us are going to get caught in the act of adultery. Anyway, it's not punishable by death in this day and age. Thank goodness. Oh, so many people. But this, <laughs> this story applies to all of us because we're all sinners. And as such, we're all benefactors of God's grace. Jesus doesn't condemn he understands and he forgives. You know, and the key is that the only person who has no sin is the one who has the right to judge. Well, that's Jesus. He's the only one. You know, the great commentator, William Barclay, said one of the most common faults in life is that so many of us demand standards from others that we never even try to meet ourselves. Now, isn't that the truth? You know, so many of us judge others for things that are glaringly obvious in our own lives. That's so common, it's got a name. It's called projection. You know, like a woman is attracted to a man that she works with, but she can't even admit it to herself. But when her husband just talks about someone he works with, not even attracted, she gets crazily jealous and accuses him of being attracted to this woman. She can't admit even her own issue to herself, but she's projecting it onto him. Or, um, well, I've heard that if you want to discover your blind spots, the things that you don't want to know about in your own life or can't face, tune in to what really bugs you about your kids or your co-workers. You know, the common scenario is the parent who seriously overreacts to their child. Well, maybe the kid has an annoying habit or they get mad and rage and yell over little things. Well, maybe the real reason behind the parent's over-the-top reaction is projection. They have the same annoying habit or the same issue, but those are blind spots. They don't want to know about them. We read about it in Matthew 7, verse 1 to 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, my, <clears throat> my paraphrase to the parent reacting to the kid, the kid is literally a chip off the old block, a speck of sawdust. Mm. Jesus pitied and protected the woman. He did not judge or condemn, but he just understood his situation, and he stood by her. 
you know, it really helps us to see how George Whitfield did when he made that famous comment back in the 18th century. He saw a criminal being taken to be executed. And he said there, that was like their entertainment in those days, I think. He said, there but for the grace of God go I. And we just really do have to put ourselves and try and put ourselves in other people's shoes. It doesn't excuse people's crime or sin, but it just does help us to understand. Now, just another little side issue. People count. You know, this incident with the woman caught in the act highlights another really bad attitude. As far as the religious leaders were concerned, she was just a pawn to be used. And who cared if she died a violent death in the process? To them, she had no name, no feelings. They were just trying to use her to get at Jesus. And it's always wrong to see people as pawns, numbers, or you know, just something to use. Exodus 33:17, Isaiah 45, verse 3, are just two verses where God says, I know you, or I call you by name. Now, be honest, everybody. How many of us speed read or skim through all the genealogies, the lists of names? Yeah, okay, I get it. We speed read through those genealogies in the Bible, but of course we do. But you know, even when I'm skimming through them, I do try and remind myself that they tell us that names and people are hugely important to God. He knows each of us by name. He knows my name. He knows your name. People are important. And Jesus knew this woman's name. He stood with her. And he had a plan for her future. Now, just before we get on to that, we must forgive as Jesus forgives. And this is like the other side of the coin. Forgiveness for our sins costs Jesus, cost him dearly. And it can be costly for us to forgive others. The woman in the story was caught in the act of adultery. So there were possibly other victims who would be facing their own journey of grief and heartache and forgiveness. We've got to forgive all who sin against us and ultimately it's for our own freedom and our own redemption. And I read about a lady called Scarlett Lewis and this is really sad, her son was killed in 2012 in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting which was America's worst ever school shooting. And she says at first it was like her anger just sapped all her strength and all her energy and of course that is to be expected with such grief. She was angry at the shooter, angry even at his mother for unwittingly arming him. But she said then she made a choice to forgive. And after that, she said, forgiveness felt like I was given a big pair of scissors to cut the tie and regain my personal power. It started with a choice and then became a process. Like after time, after a while, she said, forgiveness felt like it. I was given a big pair of scissors to cut the tie and regain my personal power. 
you know, when someone's been badly hurt, of course, forgiveness can be a long, hard journey, like grief. It can involve grief. It can be a big deal. And Jesus understands, but he's there with his love and his manifold grace all the way. Forgiveness means letting the other person off the hook, forgiving from our heart, helping them to feel forgiven at times, like Joseph did with his brothers. We, not taking revenge, not bringing it up over and over. But it doesn't mean we forget. Humans can't forgive and forget. And in some cases, that would put us back in a very dangerous and vulnerable situation. Forgiveness doesn't rule out legitimate legal proceedings, but it does mean letting people off the hook and letting ourselves off the hook. So many people can't forgive themselves, but we must. Hey, we can't argue against the power of the blood of Jesus. We must forgive ourselves as well. Jesus forgives and he gives us a second chance and a third and however many. The challenge, of course, is to go and sin no more. Now, Jesus confronted this woman with that challenge of a sinless life. He was sympathetic, non-judgmental. Broken hearts always mattered to Jesus. Likewise, broken laws matter to him. He never turns a blind eye to sin. So the challenge was go and sin no more. Wasn't a big lecture just the definite command. And we can read between the lines. He believed in her. He knew she could do it. He sees the big picture. He sees someone's past, which he deals with, but he also sees the potential and sees the future. And I love the story of Rahab the harlot. We read about her in the Old Testament book of Joshua. She's another woman in the Bible who had moral issues. She was a heathen prostitute, but she heard about the God of Israel and she believed in him. She hid the spies, which demonstrated her faith, and as a result, she saved her life and the lives of her family. And then she left her life of prostitution. She married an Israelite. She had a family. Rahab had a past, but God had a future. She... um, then we can look back on her life again in the New Testament in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Like, wow, God included the heathen prostitute in the earthly genealogy of his son. And then she comes up again in Hebrews 11. This is God's hall of fame where she is listed among the heroes of faith. Rahab had a past but God had a future. Research, you know, research has consistently linked prostitution with victims of childhood um, sexual violence. Consistently linked it. Well, God knew about that thousands of years before anyone ever researched it. We don't know anything about Rahab's background or about the woman caught in the act of adultery, but God knew Broken laws, broken hearts always matter to Jesus. He sees both sides of the coin. John Newton had a past, but God had a future. He encountered God's amazing grace 
And he also had to go and sin no more. So he went from being a brutal slave trader to being an Anglican priest and to working alongside William Wilberforce to abolish slavery. Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector, had a past, but God had a future. Jesus inspired him and helped him to go and sin no more. And that included leaving his cheating ways and learning to be honest and very generous in his financial dealings. Grace and forgiveness don't give us a license to sin. We receive God's grace and then we've got a responsibility to walk in it and to grow in holiness, obedience and victory. Jesus knows with his grace and his help, every sinner can become a saint. So how do we rise to that challenge? Okay, well, for the woman, um, it meant leaving her life of adultery or whatever her situation was, and then living within God's boundaries. Um, our society has changed significantly since those days, but God's boundaries remain the same. And um, the moral boundaries and marriage between a man and a woman has always been the only scenario approved by God for sex. So for her that would require repentance, which can be described as a deep resolve that from here on out she would seek God's help to obey his word, determined to obey God with his help. God forgives our sin, he tells us to go and sin no more. And his amazing grace is to help us all the way. And of course we know that's a lifelong journey. Every one of us is a work in progress. You know, you've all heard the phrase grit and grace, two-sided thing. Saint Augustine said, God provides the wind, but man must raise the sails. Someone else said, God gives us a boat and some oars and says, now you row. So we have a part to play in getting our boat to the right destination. But as we raise the sails and row, make right choices, do some hard yards, pray for grace, we will advance. And you know the best thing? Jesus is always with us in our boat. God, grace is God's enabling power. It's there for us in everything. We're saved by grace. We run our race, we finish our race by grace. Grace teaches us to say no to sin. Doesn't do it for us, but it teaches us and empowers us. And you hear this verse every time I preach, right? Titus 2, verse 11 to 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know, when we go through the process of learning to say no to sin, as per usual, the first part of the learning curve is pretty steep, but it levels out. And we have our part to play, but God supplies the supernatural oomph. Grace is the most beautiful thing about this Christian journey that we're on. And no matter where we find ourselves today, God's grace is greater than anything. Any mistake, whatever, his grace is more than enough to find forgiveness, 
to give forgiveness, to keep growing in our lifelong quest to become more like our Saviour. I've heard it said that you are never more like God than when you give and forgive. And today, my prayer is that you will have a moment and then a lifetime of experiencing the amazing grace of God. His arms are wide open towards us. So as Pastor Sam comes up, let's just pray. Father, we just want to say thank you, thank you, thanks a million for your amazing grace. Lord, from salvation to eternity, it's grace all the way, and we are just so grateful, and I just pray that we all will experience it in increasing measure. In Jesus' name, amen.